Hello and welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of this podcast, which is also It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J. And hello, Rosie. Rosie's here, everybody. We're very excited. Gorgeous Josephine and gorgeous, gorgeous Dr. J. See, this is an audio format, so we'll just accept that we're gorgeous. And dear listener, do accept that. I'm wearing my particularly large hat this afternoon. Isn't it a fabulous hat? It's wonderful. Delicious, gorgeous. Goes very well with the -the off-the-shoulder chiffon number, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It's so coordinated. That's what I love. It's a try. It's also kind of reminiscent of large, stumpy lady. That's true. You see, you can't see my boots at the moment. That is true. So it's like, yes, how did you guess I was wearing my stompy boots? Yes. I'm so happy. This is how I want our podcasts to start. (laughs) Hello, everybody. This is wonderful. Yes, we're very excited. We're going to be talking to Rosie Garland today, who is a dear friend of ours and is also extremely talented and does all the fabulous things. Amongst others is an author of many, many books that you should read and a poet, which you should also read. Or if you're very, very lucky, get to see Rosie deliver in person. Also, I just saw recently, Rosie, you're doing some fabulous workshops in relationship to writing so much so that it just sold out and you have to do more days. Sold out after three days. And so um, the lovely woman that I've been, or who organises it, who's based in Canada, said, well, do you want to book in another date? So uh, we've immediately booked in another date. And I'll do all the kind of plugging with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram later and websites. But uh, yeah, come along to a workshop which is about randomness. I'm a randomness enthusiast. And it's about sharing the random love. I love it. I'm very excited for you. And and I highly encourage anybody who ever has the opportunity to see Rosie read or give a workshop to go. I've been a very lucky recipient of one of Rosie's writing workshops. It's uh, one of the reasons I'm writing my own little weird novel at the moment. You're very inspirational in that regard. And also a musician because you're not busy enough and you're going to be on tour very, very soon. The last time the March Violets were on stage was in 2015 and all kinds of things to do with health and that conspired and we thought well that's probably it and then of course this minor thing called the pandemic hit so that was another reason why we thought it's never going to happen ever again and then we thought why should it never happen again and I suppose it is linked into the keeping going which um, is a bit of a sort of like hot topic for me And myself, Tom and William got our heads together and thought, well, why go out with a whimper when there there is so much whimpering and let's go out with a bang? I mean, clearly, like, you know, because the March Violets formed in the 1980s, I was clearly only aged five then because I'm (laughs) frightfully youthful now. But it's like, yeah, the truth is it's like we're not getting any younger. So do it now. And I will probably repeat that phrase at various points during this podcast. If not now, when? So uh, we're going to be on a UK tour in June and we are poised to announce dates across the pond very soon. I can't announce anything officially yet, but there are going to be US dates as well. Did I see you on that last tour? Was that the one in the US? 2015 is a long time ago. Yes, we played was called what we called the like North to South tour. That's we started we off in yep. Chicago and went 
all the way down to Brownsville, which is 400 yards from the Mexican border. And then we did a roundabout and came all the way back to Chicago. So yeah, north to south and back again. We were uh, going the opposite direction. We were going in the opposite direction, me, Val and Karen. And you just so happened to be in the same city at the same time. It just so happened. Incredible. Hanging out with you. It's just when those serendipities happen. I know it's a much overused word, but they are uplifting. They feed the heart. They do. And it was a wonderful show. And I encourage anybody who's lucky enough to be in the same place at the same time to go because it was amazing. You know, we've written new songs and that was really heartening. Myself, Tom and William got our heads together. We actually managed to be in the same room with each other in January for the first time since 2015. And we wrote loads of new songs. Amazing. That's wonderful. So that's very exciting, everyone. This is just a few of the things that Rosie does. And one of the reasons we wanted to have Rosie on this podcast, when we wrote our list of um, people that we were very, very keen to have a uh, top of the list was Rosie, and we're so very pleased that you've come to join us. Very briefly, just in case the listener does not know us, Dr. J, who art thou? I'm Dr. J. <laughs> I use that as a pronoun. I reach you from the self-defining future. I got to write my own job title, thanks to ThoughtWorks, so I have the job title Harbinger of Change, which basically means if you're talking to me, change is on the horizon. And Thanks to the New Zealand government, I got to write my own gender, which is transgressive non-binary gender queer. That is my official gender. It's on a statutory declaration, and that's what I wish to put upon your forms. As if you can't tell, I'm a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance because branding. So, Josephine, what are you, babes? (laughs) Sorry, Rosie, this is normally how we introduce ourselves, sort of. Uh, If you can believe this, this is our normal. Hello, my name is Josephine Baird. I'm an academic who is currently trying to complete a PhD for the second time, <clears throat> cough. And I also happen to be a lecturer in game design at the Uppsala Department of Game Design, weirdly enough. I am also doing my PhD, as I just mentioned, weirdly enough. Uh, I've said weirdly enough twice now. I'll say it again. Weirdly enough, at the University of Vienna for all the sort of reasons that I won't go into now. I used to tread the boards more often than I do now. However, Just this last weekend, I did a show and I was really, really pleased and it went extremely well. And I'm absolutely thrilled. It was so much fun and it got me another gig immediately. So I'll be doing another show in two weeks time in Uppsala. Probably a little too late for when this podcast goes out, but still, you might see me doing weird stand-up stuff in the future. And in the meantime, because I'm not busy enough, I'm writing this weird novel, which I was going to keep secret and then started just talking about constantly to everybody who listens. So I'm writing a weird novel. It's going slowly and you'll see something of it in the future when we decide to release it. Oh yes, we're going to release it and it's probably going to be free. (laughs) That's how we're going to do it. So (laughs) darling Rosie and I had a lovely conversation about how to self-publish. Maybe one day we can talk more about it, but we have a model where we're basically going to give it away for free in this rather convoluted way. And generally, I like to think of myself as a femme of international mystery because... It sounds amazing. <laughs> ah, there we go. Now everybody knows who we are. It's only taken us 10, 15 minutes to get here. I'm very, very pleased to have a conversation with Rosie and Jay about a topic that Rosie actually you've already sort of introduced. And it's one that unfortunately I think we're all kind of in need of at the moment, which is the ability to carry on. How very English, right? Was it have tea and carry on? Keep calm and carry on. 
Yeah, and I absolutely hate that particular meme. So I'm saying keeping going. A friend of mine sent me a card a while ago, which said, I will not keep calm and you can fuck off in that font. And it's like, yeah, that's how I feel about the keep calm. Because for me, keeping going is probably diametrically opposed to keeping calm. You know, I keep going by not keeping calm. Thank you very much. And yeah, we're not going to unpick that because it's obviously bullshit. So let's not bother. And really everything that we've said over the past 15 minutes introducing ourselves, which isn't just kind of going blah, blah, blah. I think everything we've said is about keeping going from deciding how to define your own gender and making your own job title to not treading the boards very much recently and now you've suddenly trod the boards and you've got another show in two weeks. It's like all of that is absolutely, you know, who we are feeds into how we keep going in concrete and quantifiable ways. You know, we aren't just random happenstances. Who we are is how, not just why we keep going, but how we keep going. So I think it's relevant when people kind of bang on for a bit about who they are. Absolutely. The times in my life, I think I've felt the most worried about my ability to keep going has been when I haven't been doing those things. When I felt like I haven't been able to, or I've been too scared to. And funnily enough, the novel that I keep banging on about right now, as I said, I was going to just... I hope you bang on about it endlessly. I'm going to now because it was my wife who encouraged me to do it whilst also doing the other things. I'm very, very busy and the things that I've been doing to carry on being around, as in pay the bills, doing the PhD, which is part of having the job. Uh, One day I'll tell that story. And I was struggling. It's too much. And so... Effie said, what do you want to do? What's going to keep you going? And I was like, well, I'm not drawing at the moment. I just don't feel like it. It's not there. I'm not performing. And then I said, well, I have this weird idea for a book thing that I've started writing as a comic. And one thing led to another. And it's been the thing that's helping me keep going. And it's kept me going and it's kept me having a conversation with a dear friend of mine, Suzanne Shiflett, who we've interviewed on this podcast before. And we're going to make something out of this that whether anybody reads, and I hope they might, but if they don't, it's our thing. And it's what I'm doing to carry on. And we don't talk about the how very often. I really like what you just said about all of those things, Rosie. And and I see that in you, Jay, as yeah, well. Absolutely. And I think that has underlined one of the things that I'll go back to, which is, you know, the fact that I do music, I write song lyrics, I write poetry, I write novels, I write short stories, I write flash fictions, tiny, tiny little fictions. And what you just said then, Josephine, really resonated in terms of when some of them aren't working for whatever reason. If I've got something else to go to, it really helps support me. Like, for example, I've been writing a lot of fiction recently, and so I haven't been writing very much poetry and I've been kind of getting all anxious that I won't be able to write poetry again. But it's it's waiting. It's there waiting for me when I've come back round to it. I know it will be. And in fact, I've started sort of like tiptoeing back in its direction, which has been interesting. Um, it's like having multiple tabs open or... I remember from when I was teeny, a friend had this weather vane that I really liked. And it was this little wooden hut and with two doors. And when it was rainy... 
someone with an umbrella popped out of one door. And then when it was sunny, they went back in and somebody came out wearing a sun hat. And it was obviously tremendously scientific and very accurate. I see that as how I do my writing. It's like sometimes somebody with a little poetry hat comes out and then they go back in and somebody with the fiction hat comes out. But I've got lots of doors and then another door opens and somebody with the songwriting hat comes out. So I don't often do more than one at the same time, but they do swap around. And I find that that is one of the hows that I keep going. It helps me to keep going to have different things to do. I don't do them all at the same time. But if one isn't working, I'll often move on to another one. For me, it's what is feeding me at the moment. And there's a sense almost in being fed by those activities. Like I have the joke as an ex-work, well, you're never an ex-workaholic. Work is easy, emotions hard. There are things that you will do that will feed you, that will feed your soul. And while you may be expending energy doing them, the return of that energy is so much more that you end up coming out of something fired up or impassioned, even if you went into it feeling absolutely wiped and you're like, I just feel I need to do this and I'll see how it goes. And you might just come out of it energized. And for me, at the moment, sometimes it's going to see a show with some friends and seeing something new, something different on stage, something that fires up that passion. Also, honestly, seeing some of the young people I know doing stuff and just feeling so proud of them. And that also feeds me of like, there are people who are fighting this massive dystopia that we've all got the misfortune to live through, but they're younger and they're full of energy and they're fighting it and kind of feeding off that energy, but also giving it back to them. It's kind of that just doing stuff that makes you feel fed, makes you feel stronger and energized afterwards is the thing, whatever it happens to be. I could not imagine a better way of saying it about feeding yourself and getting energy and nourishment. You just said it beautifully. Oh, I usually don't do that till the end of the podcast. Oh, no, that is just <laughs> lovely. And it's like, and I find that writing feeds me whatever form it's in, writing feeds me. So I work out practical ways of making that more likely to happen. My poems and stories and everything might fly off into the ether but I'm very practically minded from experience in terms of thinking of really concrete ways I can make this happen so that when things aren't good which we will come to and keep circling around I can kind of go to the toolbox and say right well when things are going well this works so let's use it now that things are going crap yeah and I find that really hard to remember, which is why I'm really glad we're going to record this. Or we are recording this and I'll have it to listen back to. For me, it's about routines and rituals. OK, a random routine. I do this thing called morning pages. I seriously did not invent this. And I think it works for whether you're a writer or not. And it's the idea of first thing in the morning, before you put the computer on, before you check your emails, just doing three pages of writing. And that can be ranting about something that's on your mind. It can be maybe you've got like a line that you want to chase, writing down the line and then chasing that line and seeing where it goes. But no rules, just three pages. And at the end of three pages, stop. And I've been doing that for 
years now and it's never let me down. It's a friend. It's a place I can go to and it feeds me. And it's a very practical routine that I've got into and however I'm feeling, whether I feel I can't keep going, I do it. And doing it is better than not doing it. And it is a tiny, tiny little piece of keeping going that even if I feel that I can't write, I've written three pages, even if they were along the lines of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. At least I've written for three pages. Now I'm imagining you with an S. Here's Rosie. (laughs) I want to use that as a ringtone or something. (laughs) You've got it recorded. You can't. I know. I'm just thinking that. No, I shan't use it for nefarious purposes. I shan't use it for. I'll just write that out ten times. Shall I? <laughs> just been writing lines again. That's just the way of things. It's not unusual. I remember you doing this almost all of the time I've known you, and I'm not good at this. I really like this idea of habits and rituals. I will habitually forget that I can do that kind of thing when I'm not feeling very well. It'll fly out my mind and I'll feel incapable. And that's when I'll question whether I can carry on. Because if I'm not doing this, if I can't do this, then what can I do? You know, the reason I make it a routine and a ritual is I can't remember who said it and what it was, but it's this idea that you've got to do a thing so many times before it becomes almost like a reflex. I mean, I do it as well. Here's the other one. I started this in 2020 because we weren't allowed out of doors. So I thought, fuck this shit. And so I found ways of getting out of doors. And the way I found to sort of get myself out of doors was before I had my breakfast, I went for a walk. So like it was quiet. Rush hour hadn't started. And I would walk for between half an hour and an hour just around the neighborhood. And then I'd come home have breakfast and do my morning pages. And I still do it because it's that thing of once I start doing something, the danger point is if I stop. It's like this morning, I got up early, it was still dark. I quite like walking around when it's dark. And I walked for it was about 45 minutes around the neighbourhood. And I've got to know all the cats. And the milkman and I are on speaking terms. And there's a bloke who walks a big dog just around the corner and we kind of go moaning in that way that Brits go moaning to each other and whatever the weather or the time of year my body remembers to do it so I don't have to if I sat and thought about it like it's cold it's raining it's below zero I wouldn't do it but I don't think about it I get up I have a shower I get dressed and I'm out the house like morning pages It's something that I've done so often, I would miss it if I didn't do it. And that is the only way I do it, because that's how I keep going, by it almost being a reflex. I can't be so physical in some ways, and I struggle to write longhand at the moment still. But one of the things that I found is I have a fun little mental health app that pings me in the morning, and one of the questions that says... Reflect on how you slept. So I will write down little reflections on whether I slept well or I didn't sleep well or whether I woke up in the middle of the night or not. And it's like 20 or 30 words, but it's that same little habit in the morning where I also go and that means I double check what 
my watch is telling me how I slept because how I think I slept and how I actually slept can sometimes be slightly different and just being aware of that because it's a sign with the 4.30 wake-ups and things like that, it's a sign that my cortisol's rising and I'm physically under so much stress that I need to really, really take note of that and adjust what I'm planning to do that day. And then I usually do my Wordle and I still do Wordle despite the fact that it's the New York Times who are as transphobic as The Guardian. But it's a fun little thing that I do that allows me to connect up with my friends in New Zealand oh yeah, I didn't write on the ginormous list of what's going on is also my country of birth has been devastated massively by a cyclone and uh, at least one of my friends is still without routine power and connectivity to anything else. But they still managed to post a Wordle up or post a thumbs up on somebody's Wordle. So we know that they're still around and we know that they're reading what we're writing, even if they can't respond properly. And all of that stuff is really important. Just those little connections. And finding the way that works for you. Yeah. And finding a way that feeds me as well and just ensures that I'm not worrying about people and people aren't worrying about me because friends know what I be like to see me pop up every day with, hey, I've managed to figure out a word. And it sounds so silly, but it's actually a really hard thing when you're not a good speller and you're not good with words to be able to figure out what word something might be is a real challenge every morning. And by the time I've finished it, I'm wide awake. And it's kind of like, okay, I can now scuble off and go have my shower and inject myself with coffee or infuse coffee into me. I don't actually inject myself with coffee. I take it like normal people and I drink it with milk. But I need coffee to be inside me to make me actually function because otherwise I am a non-functioning human. And then I can actually start my day. But it's that routine that works for me. And I can't get up and do the walk around. I will do the walk around at lunchtime or I will go and walk in the evening because that's when my body clock works best. I'm a, yeah. I'm the sort of person who is bouncy at 10 o'clock at night. I know Rosie has dealt with this. I think possibly the first time we met, you were performing at the RVT and you came off stage and I was just like holding my camera and bouncing excitedly. And you were like, it's 11 o'clock at night. Where's my tea? And I'm like, boing, 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 boing. <laughs> What you've said is just so brilliant because it's about knowing yourself and knowing what works for you. I know that I'm somebody that needs kind of my morning stuff. You've worked out that yours is a different time. And it's like, brilliant. It's, of course, one size does not fit. It usually doesn't even fit one, let alone all. (laughs) One size fits nobody. One size fits nobody. So there. But the other thing you've said, talking about community and about being able to connect through Wordle. Who cares how you connect with your friends in New Zealand? It's like, but it's about connecting with the people who feed us and who reflect us and having fun, you know, having fun playing word games. Whoopee do, you know, with whatever works. And because let's face it, it's this amorphous word community. Even the three of us sitting here and talking, we're connecting we're being human beings with each other we're, and we're feeding each other with that. And it's like, so you're absolutely right. It's I will kind of, you know, say that thing about the internal critic giving you the word silly. And it's like, but you said it again, you know, connecting. I, I agree. And I want to say it this way, <clears throat> because the two things that I've been doing to carry on during the last three, four years, first one is this podcast. 
we started this when I was unemployed. I didn't have an outlet. The one outlet I had, which was drawing, was not going well for me because <laughs> I'd arranged a exhibition and I was really freaked out and it wasn't happening, especially because it was physical. It wasn't going to happen. And due to my nervousness, it kind of fell apart. So Jay and I were talking and we were like, okay, we need to do something in order to keep going. We need to do something because I was not going to be well if I just kept in this headspace by myself. And so we started making this. And we've been doing it since 2020 at this point, something like that. We're getting into our third year. And it's because we're doing it together that has been so critical to this process. And we've been doing it more often, doing it less often, but we carry on doing it together. And the second thing is this book, because I do it with my friend Suzanne. And I meet her regularly to talk about it. So I meet Jay regularly to do this. I meet Suzanne regularly to talk about this book. And it made me reconnect with you, Rosie. And Moffat did the podcast also because you were kind enough to talk to me about the book. I get to talk to the people I wouldn't have the courage to talk to normally if I wasn't doing this. And I'm not saying one has to always be making things and certainly not always be making things you're willing to share. Goodness knows it's important. We're lucky enough, I think, sometimes that we make things that people do want to listen to or look at. And I'm really, really grateful to that. But that's not the point certainly not for me. And this connection, whether it's a community of two, community of three, or a community of people who've listened to the things that we made through those communal experiences, for me, that's the nub of it. I don't find I can carry on on my own. I just don't. It's very hard for me to do that. And nor should we. We don't have to. Again, it's all part of this sort of lie that we're given of keep calm and carry on, you know, button your lip. Don't talk to people about your feelings because, you know, again, we're given the lie that, oh, nobody wants to listen to all of that nonsense. And and again, that's just obviously complete bullshit. And I think you said something else then that would just like plucked a string about the idea that you don't always have to be making. And also it doesn't always have to be something that has an end product. And I agree with that, that it's the process of turning up to the page because I'm a writer you know I write that's one of the things I do to feed myself but I don't have to believe I don't have to think that everything I write needs to be shared or published and you know it's lovely when things are published but that's like the shiny end product that everyone sees it's the little tip of the iceberg that sticks out whereas the interesting stuff is all the 90 percent that people don't see because it's the process and it's under the surface. And I really like that you've raised that. It is the process, not the product. Easy to say that. It can be. For me, sometimes it's difficult because I think all three of us on some level have sometimes been the thing that we do for ourselves becomes the thing that we share and has gained a certain amount of success in that arena. That's why we were able to have these conversations, I think. For me, it's sometimes a little bit of a struggle remembering that I don't always have to do something for a product. On the other hand, having a product or a goal in mind sometimes enough to kick me into gear to actually doing the thing that's good for me. So when I have the story kicking around in my head, it's like, oh, okay, well, one day, maybe, maybe. And then when it was like, well, how about we do it together and then we kind of keep each other going? Then it becomes like, oh, okay. And then Jay's like, hey, maybe we should do this podcast thing. And we met in the summer and we talked about how can we carry it on? Because we wanted to. And that was 
where we ended up with this thing of like, well, we want to make this thing happen. And we listed a few things. We want to talk to people we care about. We want to share voices that we want to hear. We want to make this happen. So we're going to carry on by making that. And so it's a balancing act, I think. I think it's also like, and I was going to use the term winnowing, because after talking about the Shakespeare and Rosie, you, you, there's whole old school words in, inside my head today. But it's that kind of doing tons of stuff and finding the thread and the simplification for my work and a lot of what I do for my day job. It's taking in all of this wild input and just pondering it and going, that thing, that thing there is the important thing. Everything else is noise. Yeah, I was working with a new novelist a while ago, and I think one of the things that she found difficult or it was new learning was that if you're writing a 90,000-word novel, you don't just write 90,000 words. You write a great, well, personally speaking, there may be a novelist out there who, if they're writing a 90,000-word novel, writes 90,000 words. I tend to write, like, uh, far more than that and then do the winnowing, as you say, and do the editing. In fact, I've just been doing that recently because I am writing a new novel. And I started off with something like, well, with the reading draft, you know, obviously not the original lots of bits of paper. The reading draft was something like 115,000 words. And I've edited it down to something like 95,000 words. And um, I mean, there's an old joke about writing is that I have just written a novel of 120,000 words. I have now gone through and removed all the unnecessary instances of the word that. It is now 65,000 words long. But yeah, editing's great. And um, I've just been editing a novel. I've been winnowing it down. I like the word winnowing. I'm going to say it a lot from now on. I love it too. And having started this, and I'm very much the newbie in this crowd, I very much know the expansive writing that's doing at the it's moment. It's fun. It is fun. I'm loving it. And we're figuring out what to do with it. But what I wanted to ask you about this process, there's the positive edit, the winnowing down of getting to what is the heart of what you want to say and having that as a carrying on, like actually the winnowing process, the sort of like polishing, the making it really, really shine in the way you want it to. And the thing you also mentioned, which is the internal critic. And I know you've talked a lot about this in a really uh, useful and interesting way. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because Jay, you brought it up a little bit as well, this idea of when that voice isn't positive. For me, there's a big difference between the helpful editor voice in my head and the unhelpful critic voice in my head. The helpful editor, let's say I'm looking at a poem, I'm looking to edit a poem. The helpful editor will say, you know that verb you used in the third line? I'm just wondering whether that's the strongest verb. It's like you've got this word and I'm just wondering if that is absolutely the word you want to land on or if there's a more interesting word that you might be able to use here. The helpful editor is really specific and will hone in on something. The unhelpful editor, internal critic, will go, God, you call that a poem? The unhelpful critic says global, unhelpful, and very non-specific things. So if you've got something non-specific like, oh, God, this is too long. It's just going on. I'm, I'm going on about the dog too much. That's a bit 
generalized, whereas your helpful editor will say, well, I really like this tangent about the dog, but you do spend quite a lot of time describing its tail. Do we need to know that much about its tail? Or, you know, is it actually relevant? I mean, obviously, if the tail comes back in in chapter four, then we do need to know a bit about the tail. But I'm just wondering if you could have a think about that. Do you see the difference? So I'd say that's one way of spotting the helpful editor voice, which you have got. But also the other thing about um, editing, oh, God, this is turning into a writing thing. And it isn't, is there comes a point in whatever I'm doing, whether it's a novel or a poem, where I can't do it on my own, nor do I want to. And this goes back to um, you know, the much more global thing about keeping going is asking for help. Whatever that is, whether that's because you're having trouble at work or whether because things are worrying health wise or whether it's because you're stuck on a chapter in a novel asking for help. It's really tough to say, I need help. We have so many messages given to us that we must soldier on on our own or, you know, asking for help is weakness or shows that you're not good enough at something to manage it on your own. All of that nonsense. And I find that asking for help is one of the hardest things that I do. But without it, it's much harder to keep going. Learning how to ask for help, and I'm still terrible at it. This is where I need to be. I'm still working at it. I'm not terrible at it. I'm working at it. We're living in really difficult times. And that is, I think, the skill that so many of us need. And when you say we're going off on a tangent, I actually thought what you were talking about, those two voices, whether it's in relationship to writing and editing or anything else. First off, this is called It Is Complicated. We always go off on a tangent. Secondly, I actually think that there's a wonderful metaphor for exactly this thing, is I have this general voice of like, if you can't do that, or no, you're a mess, or you're terrible at something. Like it just literally just said, and I know where it comes from, and I know it's not good, and yet it's still there. Listening to that other voice, learning about that voice that it needs to sometimes be external mm-hmm. and from someone else, especially when you're not feeling like you can carry on. It is the one piece of advice that I know of that has universally helped me without fail, is to talk to someone about something. Yeah. Those like connections. I've recently been leaning a lot on people and everyone who I've said, I just need to talk this through. They've always been, let's go eat together because we're evolved social beings and eating together and talking over food is kind of one of our primal connection points. And it's really makes a lot of difference when you can just sit down with somebody and just go, and they're like, Okay. And don't attempt to solve it. Don't attempt to tell you, oh, this is nothing or anything like that. They're like, that's a lot. And then you talk some more and they're like, wow, and that as well. No wonder you're feeling a little bit under the weather. What can I do? Where can I help you? What do you need right now? And it's kind of really lovely when people have that. And a lot of young queers, I feel are starting to grow up with that as like a natural, I don't know whether it's a Gen Z way of seeing the world because they all are that young and I, oh my God, I feel ancient now. But they all are that young. They all have 
a lot more emotional maturity than I think I had at that age. I look at them and I'm wild and amazed, but they also really want those connections. They really want to make connections to people because they recognize how much it means for them as well. Just having somebody to talk to, just having somebody who take the time and step away and have the conversation and talk about the scary things, talk about the big things that are going on in your life. And sometimes it's in a been there, done that kind of way. And sometimes it's like, a, wow, I haven't been through that. Let's talk it through and whatever support you need, I'm there. We'll figure out how to support you together. That stuff is really important. And in the dystopian post-apocalyptic, heavens only knows when the apocalypse did actually happen, but I'm sure we are in a post-apocalyptic society because I didn't want to be living through the 1930s Germany because, well, I didn't want to live through the 1920s Germany because I knew what the 1930s Germany became. I seem to have accidentally signed up to that trip, it feels like, of those same things. And I think it's really important for us to remember that and to carry on and to join up and to make those connections. And this is where podcasts and talking and TikTok and stuff like that, it's building those communities. It's reaching out and finding people like yourself who are in other spaces. Because I think this is something, Rosie, you and I connected on ages ago in a, I'm going to say in a smoking area, given that neither of us smoke, it's kind of hilarious. But in the smoking area at a club, we were discussing being the queer kid or the different kid who was desperately seeking other people like yourself. And you're so isolated, you don't know that it's possible to be and feel what's going on inside you and what's inside your head. And you're desperately reaching out and trying to find others who might have a similar experience. And in the pre-internet world and in the world of once a day buses and things like that, that's incredibly difficult. And the world where we live now, where you can look on your phone and see somebody who is reflecting an experience that you might have back at you and you can go, ah, this, this, this is what's going on in part of my head. And somebody's articulated it. And then you can show it, we can share it with somebody and go, see this thing, my brain too, help, which is an amazing thing that I don't think we, and I'm going to say our generation, but I don't think we had as younger people. And I think that ability to connect and see yourself and see parts of your experience and parts of your thinking and other people is a whole new level of being able to carry on. And it's not saying that you have to produce everything for consumption. It's just when you consume something, think about what it's doing inside you and pass it on if it's going to connect you. Make those connections because those connections, yes, that's scary to reach out to somebody. It's scary to reach out to somebody who you've seen on stage. It's scary to reach out and talk to somebody. I mean, I didn't talk to Josephine for about six months after seeing them on the first time on stage because I was too in awe of them. I think I got forced to talk to Rosie because I was standing next to Heather and Heather basically grabbed me by the arm and said, you will come and meet this person, knowing how dreadfully shy I can be around meeting people who I've just seen perform and just learning that it's really important to reach out and make those connections. I don't think shyness goes away. I think shyness is still there. And I totally agree with you about the fact that, like, you know, if I'd had access to Instagram when I was a small thing, sort of like a small queer, I would have seen myself reflected in a way that I did not when I was young and went through all of that stuff of feeling like I was on my own. But I don't think that's, um, yes, it's different. 
But I still think there is, if not online isolation, I still think there's kind of a physical isolation. And as you made the point earlier, Jay, we are social animals and how, you know, that description of going out to eat food with friends was lovely because I get that. You know, I love going out to a cheap pizza joint and eating sort of like squidgy pizza with friends and that as well as connecting because we're all three of us are in separate physical spaces at the moment, although by the wonder of Zoom, we are talking with each other. There is also that extension of being physically in a space with people who we trust and who we connect to as well, because we are social animals. So I think there's a, yeah, I want to come to dinner with you. I want to go and eat food with you. Yay. I want to be in the same place. I miss yes. being in the same place as you both. And yes. it's so funny because you I think you're right about this complexity of the current situation. Because I too was pre-internet queer and I didn't see myself anywhere for mm-hmm. the longest time. And it, the damage that did, I know, is significant. I was uh, I was li- literally last weekend, I was in Tampere, which is in Finland, at a conference. And that's where I performed as well in Templar. And I was there and I met, Rosa, you'll know, Jay as well. I met Della Grace Volcano and Ulrika Dahl, who say hi, by the way. And they were doing a um, exhibition of all the pictures from the many, many years that they've been doing, documenting our community. And first off, I was like, oh my God, we've known each other for how long? And I saw some of the photos from that time in my life. But I remembered the story and I said this to Dahl. It was your book, the Drag King book, Auntie Kate's Gender Outlaw and Body Alchemy by Lauren Cameron, who's very sadly just passed. Those three books happened to be in a library that I had access to. And I was able to read those books and see my community before I was able to access that community. And before I saw that, I had no idea anyone like me existed. The best I could have done was a talk show, horrible talk show where I, you know, you'd see the worst kinds of representation because that's what they were doing. And I was able to say to to Dell and Ulrika, look, this kind of representation meant the world to me. And it still does, because all of the things that are happening right now, the things that I don't even want to talk about, they're making me so sad, are driving us apart. All of the laws that are being enacted are about driving us apart and driving us underground again. All of the policy, all of the newspaper articles, all the social crap on Twitter and all these other places, it's all about dividing us. It's all about putting us back into that kind of environment. And that's why I think expressions like this are so important. Pictures, art, poetry, meetings, podcasts. We need to be able to see ourselves and we need to be able to see ourselves carrying on against this. Because if we can't imagine ourselves doing that, that's when people are going to really, really get into trouble. Because I was in that state when I found those books. That meant the world to me. And I think it's critical, even now, even with the massive amounts of information we have access to, because we also have access to the negativity. And it's so loud right now. And I, like the two of you, am really heartened at how people who are the age I was then are doing their thing 
It's like the massive resurgence in zine culture. I absolutely blimmin' love it. I mean, making zines and reading zines and the importance of these zines that were literally like glued together in people's bedrooms and going down to the local library and photocopying them. They were wonderful in the 1980s when I was teeny weeny because they were completely unfiltered and they weren't produced with glossiness in mind. And I just love the way that that's come back because the other fabulous thing about zines is they're not produced online. So it's like they've always been outlaw publications and they're outlaw publications now. And I just think, yeah, that's a way of keeping going, going beneath the radar. I think there's something to this breaking the the rules of how you can have those communications. Because something that I've realized is that things that are being policed right now are the things that the other side can imagine us doing. And then when we twist that and do it differently, if we do it for ourselves, that's when they can't imagine us going and making a zine anymore. They can't imagine us writing or speaking or singing for ourselves, breathing together like we talked to the darling Dr. Joe Parslow. We had a wonderful conversation in a previous podcast about this idea of breathing together, that we can be there for each other, that the breath in and out can be together. For me, at this conference and the club that I went to in the weekend is the first time I've been in the same space as queers. And I just really, just a second realized in five years, because of the pandemic, because of the opportunities I've had, it's been about five years, because it's probably a pride in 2018, 2019. And when we were there and doing weird things and shit that you wouldn't expect and telling our truths on stages and hanging out and breathing together and being silly and ridiculous in the best possible sense of the word and not in the critical sense of the word, that breaking of the rules, that imagination of thinking of doing it a different way is so important when all the other avenues, the most formal avenues, the, the ways you're supposed to do things are not available. This is where I found my communities always, without fail. It's been very good to remember that the last couple of weeks with you, Jay, with you, Rosie. Hmm. Yeah. That is wonderful. I love that. I found it like a similar thing, not the same, but going to a goth festival recently and there was this sense of relief at being back in each other's company again. And just that reminder that about taking our lives back because those buggers aren't going to give it to us. It's like we need to be taking, doing these conferences. That conference sounded wonderful and I wish I was there. Taking our lives back, doing it, that's another way of keeping going. It's like not waiting for somebody else to do it for you. You don't have to do it on your own, obviously. Mm. There's no way you can organise a conference on your own. For me, it's also repurposing the mainstream. So Monday night, I was in a room full of people in the RVT. And at one point, 
me, the drag queen, is doing their performance of Raw, and I'm looking around the room going, there are some kids here where this is a retro song for them because it's been out more than 10 years and it was a song that was out when they were a young teenager. That is horrifying to realize for both me and me on stage. But then also they do it with a whole pile of strange little lines intercut in that make it quite funny and just having an entire room on the beat hit for Frodo again. And I know that we talked about it last time, but again, it's that connectivity of an entire room of people. And I know that in a couple of weeks time, I'm going to be back down there for some shows and for some things where you've also got that connectivity. I think I know the thing. It's singing along together, making a noise together that resonates across, that is from the stage, but also from the audience where singing the same song or cheering along or doing something. And we also did it last night at a show. There was a funny little By Curious George's Queer Planet. Oh my God, I so want both of you to see it because I think you'll. it's adorable in its whole riff-taking nature documentaries and twisting them into a queer space. And that subversion of what sounds so simple, it's like, how could a nature documentary not be queer? And then pointing out how unqueer and all of the assumptions and heteronormativity that's fed on top of nature documentaries and then queering it backwards and reflecting it back to us and then singing a stupid little dance tune at the end of it that gets everybody bouncing along. And it's that making a noise together in the same room is a really vitally important connectivity piece. And Rosie, I'm assuming because you perform on stage and you sing on stage, I can't imagine what that feels like to be on stage and have that reflecting back to you. It's wonderful. Singing is one of the core ways that I get into my body. I spend a great deal of time in my head and that can sometimes feel very busy and a bit round and round in circles the dog of my brain chasing its tail. And so that's another reason why I go for walks early in the morning. It's about, because I can't do running or anything like that. And get the idea of going to the gym just makes me, I don't know, curl up. But I know I need to be in my body as well as in my head. And singing is a way that I access that. And it makes me breathe. You know, even though I'm talking about it, I'm sitting up a bit straighter and opening up my lungs a bit more rather than slumping. It's incredibly life-affirming to sing. And in the band, obviously, I sing loud, and that's life-affirming as well. And again, that whole idea of being brought up a girl to sing quietly and sing nicely and sing nice songs. You know, there's a lot of nice going on in that female socialization and being somebody who wanted to always sing loudly was part of learning I was queer even when I was little and something else that helps me keep going is people who have given me inspiration and if not trodden exactly the same path trod difficult paths and made it in different ways people like Susie Quattro in the 60s were really important to me because I mean she was a shit kicker. She played bass guitar for a kickoff and wore like a one piece leather cat suit on a kid's pop program. And it's like my little eyes popped out of my head. And it was like, 
I want to be like her. <laughs> and you know, then there was Susie and the Banshees, and then there were the Slits doing, you know, Ari up and just doing punk in the 70s. And uh, then there was Pat Benatar and, oh, you know, Joan Jett writing Cherry Bomb when she was 15 or 16. So I've got all these wonderful foremothers, and I'm particularly focusing on the foremothers at the moment. But women who stepped out of line and who helped me as this rural living kid that never fitted, showing me, like you were saying, about finding those books, Josephine. It's like finding our icons and images and knowing that they've been put together by human beings. And if they're human beings and I'm a human being, maybe I can do stuff like this too because we're human. You know, it's not been done by some kind of distant godlike figure. It's been done by somebody human like me. Absolutely. I don't know if that's connected at all. I don't care. I just oh, said it. <laughs> no, no, it's 100% connected. This is, no, because I was going to say two things. One of the stories that I told on stage that got a really wonderful reaction, I'm so pleased, is a story I've been telling for 20 years as a performer and was written up in a zine a few years after I started telling it. And it's a true story about someone you know, Rosie, <laughs> and I'm amazed you do. And Jay probably already knows who I'm talking about. I met a woman called Lucy when I was 16 in a very, very British school. And the image that you just got in your head, dear listener, about British school is exactly the school I went to. That's the school. So that image you got in your head, that's the school I was at. At this school, I was 16. I wore as much black as possible and hid as much as possible and would slump around. I was incredibly depressed. I absolutely wasn't out. I had no idea there was even a term for who I was. And we were in this incredibly repressive environment. But when you're turning 16 in a British school, sometimes you're allowed not to wear a uniform anymore, but they still give you a really strict dress code of what you're allowed to wear, which is usually muted colors and gender conformity. And one day I walk into what is a common area of our area, because when you were 16, you're also allowed a tiny, tiny little bit more freedom. Not much, because, you know, it's still England. And I went into the common area, and unlike the usual cliques of 16-year-olds hanging around, there was a clump of 16-year-olds all sitting on chairs surrounding a table in this giant hall. And I walk in, and I'm completely confused. And it's a semicircle, literally on chairs, sitting and looking at this table. I can't see why they're looking. I don't know what's going on. But because I'm a 16-year-old trying to fit in, conformity requires me to walk up there and join them, which is what I do. And I walk up and I grab a chair inexplicably and sit at the back going, what on earth am I doing and what is everybody else doing? And what they're doing is they're staring at a girl, a 16-year-old who's sitting on the table, cross-legged, looking at us with a shaved head, with little tufts of hair that are attached to it, there are um, braids of different colors, makeup that is splashed across her face, dog collar with spikes, bumblebee costume, tutu, leather straps along one arm, silver bangles on the other, black and uh, purple, I think, tights. I'm gonna, I'm mixing up some details here, but this is not dissimilar outfit that Lucy used to wear to school. And one of those fabulous pair of 16-hole DMs with the shoelaces up to a sort of middle level because 90s it's silence dead silence and she says and i'll never forget this she says i'm a lesbian and i'm into sm anybody got a problem with that 
And every single student who had a problem with that went, nope, nope, no problem whatsoever, <laughs> shook their heads. And for me, it was a light bulb moment. It was like having alien angel come down and land in this place because I could see someone who was doing it. And for two years, I watched her do it. I wasn't strong enough or, or confident enough to tell her at the time. A couple of years later, I did get to tell her. And then a couple of years later, again, I got to meet her and we got to hang out. And then I found out that she just carried on doing that in different environments. It meant the world to me to see someone carry on. It meant the world to me to see someone break the rules, just as you said, Rosie. And Lucy was that for me then. You were that for me, Rosie, a couple of years ago. Jay, you've been that for me. The people I met at the conference, you were. You've been showing me that you can carry on through adversity. When I felt my absolute worst, you were there and you were showing me that you could do it. There are people who are more public eye that I could list, but there are people who are individuals who are just queer and carrying on. And when I look at them, I know I can do it too. And Lucy was one of those people. And I got to tell that story again. And I got to remember that every now and again, as a performer, sometimes this happens, someone will come and say that you might have had a little impact on their life as well. And I cannot think of anything more humbling and wonderful to hear to know that your carrying on can have that impact as well. So that's why I think what you said means the world to me. The night at the RVT, we are circling around the RVT, which is lovely. And someone came up to me and gave me a novel with their name on the cover. And it was like, oh, wow, that's brilliant. You've had a novel published. Fantastic. And they went, no, 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 no. You don't understand. They said, it's like I'm in my, you know, I'm almost 30 now. But when I was 16, I went to a show and you were performing as Rosie Lugosi and I'd never seen anything like it. And you made my little 16-year-old queer self think, do you know, you can do this. I'm allowed to do this. And I've never forgotten it because I never imagined it was going to happen that way round. I'd always spent my life thinking of like looking up to people and thinking, wow, you kept me going. And I'm going to try not to get too emotional. When somebody said it had meant something to them that I'd got dressed up as a camp drag lesbian vampire queen with fangs and six foot hair and everything that I'd made a difference to somebody else. It's like I'd, Never forgotten it. Um, yeah, I'm going to put myself on silent now for a minute, I think. <laughs> Jay, can you talk? Because I'm crying too. So. I can see that. I was going to say, for both of you, I did that performance called Performance Changes Your Life. And that as a performer or as an audience member or as a photographer, everything you see, every performance changes your life, changes your world, gives you a slightly different perspective, challenges a way of your thinking challenges and connects you in a different way to the performer as an audience member or as a performer to an idea when the audience reacts back. And I love going up to young performers and going, I am so proud of you. I'm so proud that you are saying what you're saying and the way that you're saying it. It means so much for me to see it. And because it's so easy to become an old jaded queer on the scene because you've seen it all I've been around since 2005 when people say have you seen it all I'm like I've seen people shit on stage I've seen people smear blood over themselves on stage what could you do that could 
changed my world. And yet people still constantly do it because they come out with new ideas. They come out with new ways of thinking about something, of discussing something, whether they think it's political or not. It changes your world. It changes how you see something. And I cannot think of a greater thing than to have changed somebody's world, than to have either way around, to have seen something that's changed my mind or have done something that's made somebody go, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way around and it's now changed my world or changed my way of thinking. And that to me is just one of the coolest, greatest things that any of us can do. And I can see why you're both so touched and so upset. I Quite frankly, now, me and my emotions are just needing to stay a million miles apart because if I start crying, I will be sobbing. So I'm just being able to be very distant from it right now. I won't be in about 20 minutes time when we finish this. I will go off and sob myself quietly and then have a shower before I go out. But it's still that emotional connection about performances, but it's not just emotional. It's that intellectual connection as well, that seeing a different perspective or just being challenged on the perspective you've taken. You've also circled around to something that might be my way of finishing things. And that is something you've both said, and it's about generosity. And it is one way that I keep going, particularly when things are very, very tough. And that is remembering to give generosity into the world of creativity. And sometimes it can be incredibly hard because I do find, funny enough, I find the Twitter writing community very supportive for all its faults. And let's face it, Twitter has legion faults. I find the writing and creative community very supportive and very nice. And It's like when somebody shares that they've had a poem published in Electric Bicycle Journal or that they've managed to draw a picture. And I remember generosity to just, you know, just to say, this is great. I'm so pleased for you. Congratulations. Hurrah. You know, waving the pom poms. And that can be particularly tough when things aren't going well for us. And I often think that how we are when things are not easy and how we keep going is fine when things are fine. We're thrown back on our resources when things aren't fine. And I find that being generous and making the effort to congratulate somebody for getting a publication, maybe when things are not going well for me, that helps me keep going. And that might sound bizarre. Because it sometimes feels like the opposite of what I want to say. And that's a real confession. I mean, and I can say it here, but I haven't really said it to very many people. In 2021, I was dropped by my publisher. Josephine knows this. My publisher who's published my three published novels doesn't want to work with me anymore. And great googly moogly, I was not expecting it. And it made life very, very difficult. And I remembered to be generous to others, however hard it was. And dear me, it was difficult to feel like celebrating other people's good publishing news. But remembering that thing of, if I'm, I think Kate Bornstein says it on those wonderful get out of hell free cards. It's like, love who you want, do what you want, but don't be mean. And I've still got Kate Bornstein's wonderful get out of 
hell free card because the idea of just not being mean it's such a simple thing to say but so central to keeping going because if we're mean to other people it's just putting meanness into the world and that bounces back at us and it's it's the old saying hatred is like taking poison and expecting the other person to get sick so generosity being generous even when we don't feel like it especially when we don't feel like it i agree i think kindness is the answer to pretty much everything if there is a meaning of life that's what it is and i think that really is the hardest and best way to go it is the kindness of others that is meant that i'm here now it is through kindness that i know i have been inspired to be that way as well it is the generosity of jay both with energy and literally with money sometimes when i've been very very in need that i am here it's with the kindness of our conversations rosie that i felt like i can do some of the things i can do i do know that you're in a better space right now with your publishing and i also know the conversation that led to that we talked to me a bit about that and I am pleased for you and always so proud and amazed that you can carry on being kind, that you can keep going being kind, even through the times that you've been through, because it's meant the world to me and more people than I can even imagine, I'm sure. So thank you. It's the idea that we keep going and things don't stay the same. Things don't stay static. They might feel like they're stuck and they're stagnant, but things do move. And yes, 2021, I was dropped by my publisher and then completely out of the blue, I've got another publisher. It's like, I feel like I've been given a second chance. I'm not saying things get better, although things just don't stay the same. And when things don't stay the same, that feels better than them staying stagnant. And we make that happen. I also don't think it was out of the blue that you got a new publisher. Well, thank you. (laughs) That's a longer story for another podcast. So I think all this discussion on kindness brings us around to how we usually finish our podcast, which is on discussing the absolute breathtakingness that is Keanu Reeves. Because that is literally the entirety of it's one of those things that we always end up discussing. And I know Josephine tries to throw it to me in a very nice way, but I'm just putting it out there, that one of the things that makes Keanu Reeves so breathtaking as a person is his kindness. He's legendary for he's legendary for the way that he treats people. He's legendary for the stuff that he does on sets. But also, you look at how that's opened up his world. The stuff that he did on the set for with The Matrix led to the John Wick movies, led to all of that stunt work, led to all of that community coming in and helping i mean i just watched john wick 2 the other week because shooty shooty bang bang no it doesn't pass the mitchell test but by god it's a good movie it's got all the right amounts of driving and shooting and banging and and fighting and and everything (laughs) like that and it's what you need sometimes and then watching that and realizing that the person who's leading that the person who's performing this shooty shooty bang bang bad boy character is one of the kindest loveliest people it just is breathtaking. It is kind of one of those things. It's fun to watch and it's brilliant to watch and it's very cool. I like it. Rosie, I don't know if you... Be excellent to each other. 
<laughs> and that's that's what we'll leave on. And yes, Rosie, I don't know if you knew this about us. We do end every podcast talking about why and how Ken Reeves is breathtaking. And with that, dear listener, thank you very much for joining us once again. And thank you, Rosie, for joining us. This was wonderful. Please, if you ever wish to come back, we would be just delighted for you to come back. And for you, dear listener, we'd love for you to come back. And if you can't be away from us for too long, or if you want to connect with us, because that's what we need to do in these times, you can find us on Twitter. We're now on Mastodon much more, but I haven't really finished moving everything across because there is a piece of paper with everything that's happened in the last 12 months and fixing up our Twitter accounts after several pylons has just fallen by the wayside. So if people want to reach out to us, leave us a review somewhere and we'll get in touch or come talk to us on Patreon. For now, dear listener, perhaps you can get in touch with us through Patreon. We'll try to make a place there where you can do that publicly and maybe even make a thread to say, hey, get in touch here. We're very happy to hear from you. And in the meantime, please do join us for the next episode. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again to Rosie and thank you to you, Dr. J. And we hope that all of you can feel like you can keep going as well, because we care very deeply about you. And thank you for listening to us. You help us keep going and wish you all very, very well and see you next time.